Alright, so um, I'm driving and uh, I tried to record an audio uh, a second ago and um, it did not work out. Um, I think because my Bluetooth is on my car and like it's, for some reason it only works right with a certain app. Um, what was I going to say? So I've been, uh, I'll start this off and maybe I can try to say what it, repeat what I said. Um, so I've been wanting to talk about this story in Hinduism um, for a while now. And I've been wanting to talk about it. And uh, more and more, I'm kind of thinking I maybe need to talk about it. Um, Because it's just, I don't know, it strikes me as incredibly profound. And the more I, um, and the more I think, like, I myself and I guess we as people, humanity, whatever, could wrestle with these ideas, I think the the more it might uh, affect our theology or affect how we we see things in the world um anyway that's probably not the right way to say it but um so anyway i guess i was gonna say first off that um you know that there's this idea or this struggle with you know like god you know killing anybody or killing the canaanites or killing this person or that person or killing his own people or whatever um but there's a way like god just always does that because god uh and you can think of it multiple different ways. Like, you could even think of it's your own self. Like, you have this idea of yourself that... Uh, we all have an idea of ourselves that we can envision that is, like, perfect. Or a better version of ourselves. That we're always growing into and always being called into. And so God... And God, who is infinitely good, infinitely righteous, infinitely holy, is a way of always killing us. Because we can never live up to those... To his image, in a way. He's always calling us into his image, but we can never live up to it at the same time. And so in a way, he's always killing us. He's telling us, you need to be perfect. You need to be perfect. But then every time, um, you know, we experience this, I think, if in anything you try to be perfect in, if you try to be like the perfect musician or the perfect, uh, or you try to like have the perfect weight or, um, you know, the perfect basketball player or whatever, you're going to burn you up. Like it's going to burn you up. Even if you are the perfect one. For a while, it's like that's fading, and it's gonna that idea, the the striving for that is going to burn you up. It's gonna be a consuming fire, and it's gonna judge you, and it's gonna condemn you. And so, but it needs to be there because it needs to call you to perfection. Because there's an infinite potential in each one of us that we get. We're being called into more and more perfection. We're being called to be most righteous, most holy, most pure, uh, from glory to glory. Right? There needs to be this this. It's like this gap between us and God that will always be there people aren't gonna like that I said that um because it's not it that's just one way of seeing it that there is a gap you know but there but at the same time there isn't but the the reason I say that is because it needs to be there because there always needs needs to be this great gulf between us and God because we need to gosh people are really not gonna like I can think of people I know that aren't gonna like that I say that because it makes God sound unre- unrelatable but that's not the case uh this is just one I guess, aspect of, I don't even want to say of seeing it because it's very real that that exists because it is always, there's infinite potential in us and within that infinite infinite potential, God is wanting to call that to its best. But then once you reach your best, it's like there's still a better because it's infinite and it's infinitely righteous, infinite holy. It's glory to glory to glory to glory to glory to glory and the glory never ends. And so then... So that's what I mean. There's an infinite gulf of glory that you're continually, continually going into further up and further in forever type thing. Um, you know, but you're being called into that perfection. So 
in the same way that you're being called to this to this this glory that you could that you never get you know this 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 ideal this ideal self this image of yourself this image of god or whatever it's always judging you because you never live up to it it's always judging us so it's always killing us right but the same way god is our judge he's also our advocate um so the same same god who's judging our case is also pleading our case um yeah so and i think i see that in christ and so that's why you know i i don't know if i can call myself a christian anymore i don't know i don't really care anymore i love jesus so i don't know that that really matters um, but I see that in Christ. I see that in God because God is love. So love always calls you to your fullest potential. But it always judges you in doing that because you never live up to it. It's always telling you, be perfect, be perfect. Oh, you're perfect now? Well, you could be more perfect. <laughs> you could be more holy. Um, so it's always judging you. But then it's always pleading your case. And it's always calling you into that. Um, yeah. So anyway, I say all that to say, um, you know, you, know, you see things like the Canaanites, the slaughter of the Canaanites, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, the fire falling from heaven. All those things. Our God indeed is a consuming fire. Um, and so he is always killing us. He's uh, The the judgment is always... It seems like... Yeah, it's always always killing you. Killing us or something. I guess, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm making... This message is way worse than the first one. first one, it sounded a lot more clear, I think. Um, and hopefully that makes sense to people. Because... Um, I know I can imagine a knee-jerk reaction against that idea, but what I'm saying is that I think it has to be that way because I feel like you start to lose hope afterwards. You be you enter into a plate of a place of stasis um, or complacency or stagnation, whatever you want to call it, because there's always what I'm getting at is there's a further up and a further in, but because of that, it's always calling you further up and further in infinitely. And that's a good thing, so we don't, so we don't fall into stasis. But then at the same time, you know that because it's the I- ideal is always something out of our grasp. It's always judging us, and we never live up to it. Hopefully, that makes sense to people. Um, so I like to kind of get into the story now. Having said that, um, hopefully that wasn't too long. Hopefully that makes sense. But I'm going to stop this here because I don't know how this audio is going to sound. Hopefully it sounds better than the last one. Hopefully that was kind of at least somewhat clear. Then I'm talking about, you know, when I'm talking about it, you could say I'm talking about the father. You could, we're going to kind of identify it that way. Um, that's the the one who's the judge. You always, you always fail to live up to your father's image. That's what I'm saying. But um, it's still always calling you higher. And a father's love is always there to plead your case when you fail to live up to it. And ultimately to call you, I would think, to try to call you into a better image as well. So anyway, um, I'm going to pause this here. All right, so now I'll try to talk about the story of Parashuram. Um, I thought about just playing a video because there was a, a video on this um, channel with Hindu stories that I I wanted to just share, but I don't know if I'll get in trouble for copyright. Um, uh, I'll get upset if I try to do a commentary on it. So I'll just try to retell it. And it might be better that I'm retelling it because there's a lot of, um, you know, you get into the different Hindu words and, and Hindu names. Uh, and so they're kind of a bit I think can be confusing or a bit hard to follow and really I think you just kind of need the um the categories right so you have a father and a mother and you have five sons 
And one of the sons will say his name because the story is Parashram. So Parashram is, uh, if I'm saying that right, that's just how I'm going to keep saying it. Parashram is an incarnation of Vishnu. So I don't know if I should step back here, but there is like a trinity within Hinduism, which is almost, uh, at least the way I see it, very, very similar to the trinity in Christianity. <laughs> very, very profound uh, similarities and parallels. Um, but anyway, uh, Vishnu. So there's three in the trinity in Hinduism. There's uh, Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu. And Vishnu is kind of the one, the aspect of God that it incarnates, I guess you could say. He comes in, in, in different incarnations throughout time. People have probably heard this before somewhat. So anyway, we're just going to focus on this one. Um, you could say this is any kind of divine idea or something being fully incarnate within man. So he comes in in the, in the form of this man called Parashuram. And there's different stories to him, I know, but there's one story in particular. He's the he's the, the incarnation of Vishnu that is known for killing his mother. Um, and so it's that story specifically, the one that he kills his mother that I wanted to talk on. Um, because I feel like, you know, when I first heard it, I was like, oh, I feel like this is really interesting because this kind of relates to Calvinism. Um, to me, it did in my head. But I think you could also draw par parallels from like, um, you could say it kind of looks like a, it looks like um like Islam or something in a way as well. Because Parashuram, that incarnation of Vishnu, seems to be like the the word of God, or you could say that, made flesh. The word of God made flesh. The the word of God that says, uh, not my will, but your will be done, Father. The one that he's the, the son that is fully, fully dedicated to his father's will. Um, and so you could say that is what Parashram is embodying is in incarnating if that's even a word so there's one father one wife five sons right um i'm just gonna tell the story and then maybe i can stop it and then try to maybe explain it some more and this might be kind of long and lengthy but anyway so i'll just tell the story here i mean the explanation might be long and lengthy but anyway so the you have this father and so he has five sons one of them is parashram and you know, his wife um, is going, she's going to just fetch some water. Um, I think she's got, she's going to like prepare a meal for the father and the, and the five sons. And so she's going down to the river. And when she gets to the river, she sees this man. And I think in the story, if I remember correctly, it's some sort of like, I think he might be kind of like a, a God-like type of guy. I don't think it really matters though. At least it probably does. I don't want to say these things don't matter. Because there's parts of the story I don't fully understand that I feel like are very important. And I don't want to throw them out just because I don't fully understand them. But I could be wrong. I don't remember that part correctly. All I know is she's extremely attracted to this man. He's extremely beautiful. Um, and so she basically falls into a trance. I think there might even be other women around the man too. Like this, this He's kind of just this divine god-like figure. Sorry. Let me see. Hopefully that didn't mess anything up. All right. I, I don't know. I have no idea if that's correct or not, if he's a godlike figure. But anyways, there's, this guy is extremely beautiful. She gets distracted. She falls kind of into a trance and loses tracks, tracks of time. And she's just gazing at him at this river. And then she lusts after him in her heart. Um, and then um, finally she snaps out of it and she realizes, oh, no, I've been here so long. She gets her water. She rushes back to the house. But her husband, the father figure, um, 
he's been in deep meditation and he knows that he's he knows that she's been unfaithful in her heart towards this man um and so he he goes to his five sons and he says you know your mother has basically committed adultery in her heart you could say that and so he says you need to kill your mother um so the four sons um all right so before i say that so he tells he gives all his sons commands this is the command kill your mother and then uh the four sons are really the five sons all of them are really wrestling with this because you know one um it's a it's a sin to kill a woman but it's like an even more grievous sin to kill your own mother for which there is no remorse which i think that is incredibly profound that there's no remorse for killing your mother um there's an emphasis on that but on the other hand, this is why they're struggling. It's um, it's a it's very a big uh, big sin to disobey your elders, and an even greater sin to disobey your father, who is your provider and gives you all good things. And so they're struggling with this, and they don't know what to do. Four of the sons decide they're not going to kill their mother, and they don't obey their father's will. Parashuram says, "You know what? He's so devoted to what his father commands." Um, that he carries out the execution and he kills his his mother and he kills his four brothers for disobeying the father um so then the father is so pleased with parashuram that he comes to him and he says son i'm so pleased with you that that you that you just did what i asked and you were committed to my will and you you've carried out my command um if there's anything i can give you i will give you anything just just please whatever you ask i'll give it to you and so parashuram what he requests of his father he says father I want you to resurrect my mother and my four brothers from the dead. And so that's that's the story. Oh, but the thing, yeah, this is the part I don't want to forget because uh, this is the part I don't quite understand, um, but I feel like it's probably important. He asked him to be resurrected without any memory of him killing them or, or I think her transgression even of her like sinning against by lusting after this man. That part I don't necessarily like of the story, the forgetfulness aspect. Um, but it's there. And so just because I don't like it, I don't understand it, I don't want to throw it out. Because I feel like, you know, these people, people that tell these stories probably have greater understanding on them than I do. All right, so that's the story. I'm going to end this here, and then I'm going to try to comment on it. So, all right, so this is the last, hopefully the last one. So like I said in the first message, you have the Father, you have God, who kills all the time. His judgment is always, you know, it there's a potential you didn't live up to you know and so you can make all draw all sorts of parallels with the story too you know like you have the god is married to his creation right and so you have his creation becomes unfaithful and so they sin in their hearts against god and they commit adultery against god and so his command is to slay them and then you have um these different sons you know and you could say they're different you could even say they're different um uh denominations with within christianity you could say they're different different uh, i don't know sects of judaism like all these different things you could make draw parallels probably you know i will say this um and people probably won't like this you know i i was kind of thinking oh prashuram he's so committed to his father's will um and god is so sovereign to him that you could probably draw parallels from say calvinism there um uh, because there's a way um You know, I think Calvinism 
when you follow it out to its telos, it becomes, you know, you could say it becomes something like the, the all-consuming fire, the judgment, the fire from heaven, you know. But then if you follow universalism out, it becomes something like the Antichrist, you know. It's not, it's not good um, if you follow it out. And that's what people probably won't like because I would personally probably call myself, if I had to label myself, it would probably be something like universalism, but it's not really quite in the way that I even just mentioned it there. The reason I say universalism can be something like the Antichrist is because um, if you get, if it is the idea that there is no hell, there's no, there's no consuming fire, right? You're saying there's no consuming fire. There's nothing to burn away the chaff. Everybody just kind of uh, kumbaya, whatever, do whatever you want. There's a way there's that flattery, that type of flattery never calls anybody higher. And everything ultimately kind of becomes meaningless because nothing's being called to a higher purpose, a higher good. Everything kind of falls into this flood-like state. You know, you either have like, it's kind of like fire and water. You have one that's this consuming fire, this judgment from heaven that's like will fall down and burn you. Or you have the flood come up from beneath and everything kind of forms into chaos. It's order and chaos, the two things, you know. So, um, but the reason I say that, you know, it kind of becomes Antichrist because it, it kind of is so loving of God's creation, it forgets to love God. And in that way, it kind of, uh, you could say, stabs God in the back or betrays him. I think it would be pushed to a point of that. If it doesn't if it doesn't hold in one hand, you know, you have mercy in one hand and truth in the other. And if, you're, if, if, if we are so accepting, you know, and flattering of God's creation, and it's never being called higher, then when God comes to call it higher, it's like, what do you do with that? You would probably betray God. Um, that's what I mean where I think it kind of becomes Antichrist. And I think that's the reason, you know, it happens in the Bible that way. You know, it talks about Antichrist comes in with um, uh, with intrigue and with flattery. And says, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Absalom does the same thing. I think Absalom, there's some some reason. There's this great association with Absalom and the Antichrist in my head. Um, Absalom comes, he's a son of David in the Bible. And he basically goes to the people and he says, I'm going to judge everybody's case. Why Why can't I be judged? Why does my dad get to be judged? I'll be judged. I'm going to judge everybody's case. And you know, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. Y'all are fine. And then he basically kind of usurps the throne of David by winning over the people through flattery. So God's creation. God is married to his creation. But when his creation commits adultery, <laughs> you know, it ought to die. It ought to repent, you know, but but that's what I mean. I, these things are probably triggering to people to hear me talk like this. Antichrist is anything that is, you know, antichrist. It's not like one specific thing or one specific man, you know. But I guess I should, probably shouldn't spend too much time on that thought. And when I say it ought to die, though, when I say if you commit adultery against God, you ought to die, is because you ought to repent. But in repentance, in turning back to God, there's a death of your old self. I hope that makes sense to people. There is a a leaving. The adulterous woman dies and she now becomes a virgin again. Does that make sense? She now becomes dedicated back to the husband. Creation becomes dedicated back to God, to the divine love. Um, And so the adulterous creation perishes and the new creation is the virgin one, the dedicated virgin one. Um, if that makes sense. But the adulterous one must die. Uh, but it dies through repentance. You know, uh, it's like a caterpillar going into a cocoon or something. Uh, you know, the caterpillar dies and dissolves and is reborn, 
yeah. So anyway, I just spent way too long on that. So hopefully that wasn't too much rambling. Um, so back to comment on the story. Like you could say the four sons that side with the mother are universalists. They just loves God, love love God's creation so much. Everybody's good. Everybody gets accepted. Um, we don't really need the father's fire um, to burn us up because we're kind of all good here. With everybody loves everybody. This thing we don't need. We don't need the glory to glory in passing through this this holy flame that burns away the chaff every time, you know. And they they kind of we don't need to die is what they're saying. We don't mother doesn't need to die. We don't need to die. Creation's good. And so they side with her. And I'm kind of painting them in a bad light. I don't think they're necessarily wrong because like it says there is no no remorse. Like when you kill your mother, that's not good. There's no remorse. So I don't think either of the sons are right, you know. I just think that's what I think is so incredibly profound about this story. It's kind of like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If you kill your mom, that's a sin and there's no remorse for that. Like there's no remorse. <laughs> Which is just absolutely such an amazing statement. Um, but if you, you know, if you do, if you do kill your mom, then what are you left with? You're left with nothing. Like there's no more potentiality because the mother is like, it's creation it's divine it's like the divine feminine there's no more there's no more there's no more creation like there's no more potentiality there's no more creation there's no more hope it's just you and the father and so the son that is fully dedicated to his father's will and his father's image if that son let's just let's just entertain the idea that that son that person exists and they always do the father's will they always do what the father says so they're the spitting image of the father but there's no more mother, there's no more feminine, there's no more wife, there's no more bride to take that image and give birth to it anew. So the potentiality ceases to be. Because the son fully reflects the father, but he's killed his mother. And there's no more creation. So all there is is logos that won't die. Like it won't go into a womb and die and dissolve and be reborn. Uh, like, where would the father and the son put the seed? Like, as crude as that may be. So that's what I, that's what I mean. You're damned if you, you do, and you're damned if you don't. If you kill your mother, there's no more remorse. Um, there's no remorse for that. If you don't, if you don't, then you kind of kill your father in a way. You disobey your father, uh, who provides for you all good things. And you have nothing more to aim at. You have no more... Oh, gosh. I hope this makes sense to people. Anyway, I just found it fascinating because, you know, the story ends in universalism. Uh, what I would think is universalism. The universalism I kind of believe in ultimate reconciliation. Because I think, this is why I related to Calvinism too. If you're if Calvinism says God is sovereign, I'm going to always do what God says, right? So you have that idea within Calvinism, you could say, or within Islam, or within anything that is fully dedicated to the God above the higher calling if you're just fully dedicated to god god's command like i established earlier is going to be kill you because it's always calling you higher so you're fully committed to that and then and god's the judge he's the ultimate judge and so you he then he then what happens when he gives you a judgment seat and it says you know the saints are going to judge the world to come the saints shall even judge angels and so what happens when God gives you a judgment seat? You could say, uh, I don't know. Like, I don't know what to do. God's sovereign. I have no idea what to do. 
And so you throw the judgment up to God. And God says, well, I already said my judgment. We, I'm a consuming fire. <laughs> you know, it must go through the fire. So you could either throw it up to God or you could carry out the judgment yourself. But the conclusion of that, like I said, is no potentiality. It's no more creation. So you're left with nothing else but to beg for the resurrection of the dead. Um, which is ultimate reconciliation. I hope I explain this. I feel like I just did a terrible job of explaining it. You have to be... You have to love God and you have to love man, right? So loving God is loving the father and loving man is loving the mother, right? Because mankind in general is creation. And and loving the mother is more than just loving mankind. Like it is loving all creation. But um, I'm trying to think, I hope I explained it right. Because if you say God is sovereign, I'm fully dedicated to my Father's will. My Father's command is always, um, always caring about in the body, always dying all the time. And so his, his, his command is to always, it's something like he's always the judge, you know. But then if you actually follow that out, there's nothing left. There's nothing left. You would have, I feel like, and this is an arrogant statement for you, for me to even say, because I'm saying it so definitively, and that's probably not true, but I would say I feel like there's nothing left but to ask for the resurrection of the dead. To say, I want my mother back. I want my brothers back. Like, otherwise, I'm, you're just alone. Um, you could say, oh, you're alone with God, but like I said, what what does that get you And there's no potentiality? It's just a logos that doesn't die. Um, and so you're kind of gazing into some narcissistic mirror for all eternity, or God is gazing into one, looking at you. Um, and God's not a narcissist. So there has to be that creation that takes the Logos, the image of God, and it dissolves in the womb and is reborn. Gosh, I hope this makes sense to people. I feel like I did a terrible job. Um, but hopefully, maybe someone will find this interesting... Like I said, I'll probably upload this somehow, string these three audios together and upload it. And I don't even think I said everything I wanted to say. But like I said, uh, I'd like to just keep... I really really want to revisit this story over and over in my mind. And I'd like to keep talking about it because I feel like maybe I'll just get better at talking about it. And better at the, the main points and trying to tease out and explain and uh, engage in the in the what I think are the really profound parts of this story. But I'd like to do more of this as well. Um, so if anybody enjoys this, let me know because I'd like to actually dig into other... There's other Hindu stories, actually, that I'd really like to get into. I just still need to, like I said, keep revisiting them so I can get better and better at thinking about them and even retelling them. But there's also Greek stories, too, I'd love to get into. But they, uh, for some reason, they seem to not really linger in my mind as much i don't know why like i'll get certain aspects of greek stories but i the full stories like don't really seem to to stay in my head as much but i i think those are very profound too i like all this these, these stories though so um we'll see but there is another hindu story okay there's another one i got to tell because it's just it's it's just like perfect and it's like a guy with his dog and i'm like oh this is my story this is just 
Right up my alley. It's a beautiful story. I'm going to have to tell that one next. Um, but anyways, hopefully let me know if anybody enjoyed this or if they found it extremely confusing. Um, because I'd like to, uh, I don't know. Um, I'd like to get better at explaining it and talking about these things. All right. Thanks. I guess that's all.